Christianity has uh, had a long and very, uh, I think, weird and distorted history of its relationship with our sexuality. The French philosopher Michael Foucault said this, Christianity's most intolerably burdensome legacy is this, sex is sin. Sex is sin. This bizarre relationship that Christianity has had with the topic of sex and our sexuality has run along a continuum. That continuum goes all the way from sex is dirty, sex is evil, sex is bad, all the way to sex is sacred. So sex is sin, all the way over to sex is sacred. On the sinful side, you have the Victorians who were very, I don't know, vocal about sexuality and they uh, had extreme modesty or so we thought or think uh, looking at pictures. But we often, if you read history, will find that during the Victorian era, sexuality was bizarre and rampant and as perverse as anything that you see today in the, in the 2000s of our own century. On the other hand, you have uh, the church that taught that sex was so sacred that you either didn't have sex or uh, when you did, uh, it was only for procreation, only uh, to have children. And it was nothing to be enjoyed. It was something you just did and got it over with as quickly as possible. And hopefully you had children from that. And if not, well, you know, maybe God was punishing you. So sex has had this uh, enormous, I think, a black eye. And, and uh, I think it's because people don't read their Bibles. Sexuality in the Bible is pretty clear. It's not that hard to understand. Our church has recently put out a statement because of all the political and cultural things that are going on. We believe in our denomination that sex is reserved for marriage between one man and one woman. And that's what we believe. And that's what we believe that the Bible clearly teaches. Now there's a lot that goes along with that. And the Apostle Paul takes time now. He's been digging. If you notice, if you've been reading Ephesians, if you've been listening to the sermons, he's digging layer by layer. He's going deeper and deeper into the human heart. And finally, he's going to get down into what I think is the very center of our heart, which is the issue of our love and our sexuality. And so I'm going to talk this morning a little bit about that. I'm going to tread lightly because we have children here. And so uh, in the question and answer time uh, after uh, Kim's presentation, if there's any time, I'll be happy to talk to you. Uh, with the adults a little bit further and if you have questions during the week you can call me and if you have really need to talk about it um, I'm happy to meet with you over it but I'm going to tread a little bit lightly and so I hope that the adults will pay attention read between the lines and the parents when you get home if your kids ask you questions explain to them in an age-appropriate way um, and I'll, I'm going to try to be careful uh, we're going to look at this under three headings uh, very quickly we're going to look first of all at love our sexuality. Now, I'm not going to say that all about love is sexuality because it's not. But one of the highest expressions of love is our sexuality, our sexual relationship, our sexual nature as human beings. 
So we don't want to ignore that and put it off like it doesn't exist or that it's a separate thing. It is intrinsically connected to our love and sexuality. They're connected inseparably. So we're going to look at love, our sexuality. We're going to look at light. The sexual imperative, our sexual imperative that the Apostle Paul and our Lord Jesus and I believe the entire Bible gives us our sexual ethic, our our imperative and our ethic. And finally, we're going to look at the, the topic of wisdom and that's where I think we find our sexual redemption. Our sexual redemption. So we're going to look at love, our sexuality, light, our sexual imperative or ethic, and finally, wisdom, our sexual uh, redemption. So let's look at the first one. This is the first few verses of Paul's very strong warning. He says, be imitators of God. The word imitators is the word we use for mimic. He's, he's saying this. Listen carefully. He's saying reproduce in your life. Reproduce in your life the essential character of God. Reproduce in your life the essential character of God. Well, what is that essential character of God? The Bible tells us that His essential character, one of them, not the only one, but one of them, is love. In fact, John went so far as to say God is love. Now, you cannot reverse that and say love is God, can you? Right? Because you lose the definition. But we can say God is love. Now, God is other things as well. And so where is love, uh, uh, class, theology class, where is love in the cone of certainty? Where is it? It's way up there in the cone of certainty. But so is holiness. So is justice. So is righteousness. So is judgment. High in the cone. These are things that God takes very seriously and all of which are part of His essential character. But love, love is something unique about the Christian God that no other God shares. Allah is compassionate and merciful. But it doesn't say He loves. And there's something different in that. Don't have time to go into it, but in the Q&A if you want to know, we can talk about it. So God's essential character is love. And what then, listen... What then is essential to God's character of love that makes it utterly and completely unique? Well, here's what it is. Paul says what it is. It's sacrifice and service. He says love as Christ loved you and gave Himself to you. He defines what love is. And that dies directly to sex and sexuality. It is sacrificial and it is selfless. It is serving another person. So love as Christ loved us and sacrificed. That is the essential character in your sexuality that God is wanting you to reproduce. Serve. Sacrifice. Love the person whom God has placed in your life for you to be joined with in that unique way. In doing this, what Paul does, he's addressing 
the most profound physical, listen, physical, emotional, and spiritual expression of love, which is our sexuality. He's, he's going down into the very deepest part of our hearts and touching something that we all know is there. But the church has been a little bit prudish about talking about sex. And Garrett, I think, pointed out the other night that the Bible's not PG, is it? It's not G or PG. It's more like R. But most of us don't read the Bible with our eyes open and understand that God came directly at our sexuality with, with full guns blazing. He tells us what it is. He doesn't mince words. And some of what He says would shock and surprise you. And again, we won't get into all of that. But here we go. Look at verse 3. Sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness. He's telling you, don't engage in these things. Now the word for sexual immorality, many of you have heard this, I don't know how many times I've heard it, is the word porneia. It's the word we get pornography. But Paul was not saying it's the internet. Although it includes the internet. And for those of you in my generation and for other people, heads up, Hugh Hefner did not create pornography. Pornography is not a 20th century innovation. And the 21st century is not the most rampant sexual generation that has ever existed. That would be reserved for other generations, Paul's being one of them. Are you following me? There are still taboos in the United States of America. Now, they may be going away quickly, but there are still taboos. No matter what you read, no matter what the culture keeps throwing and throwing, and they are relentlessly throwing things at us. But no matter what they're throwing at you, there are still everybody, everybody in the back of their mind, they're going, they're going, yeah, that's real nice, but I know that Fifty Shades is not right. Yes? I know there's something wrong with that. But there was a time in history when sexuality in the most perverse and unbelievable ways was not only accepted, but was institutionalized. It was part of the social fabric of the Greco-Roman world as well as much of the, of the Near East. And, and in the, if you go back even further into the ancient Near East, all the nations that surrounded Israel, the nations that they were sent to uh, deal with and push out and address were so sexually charged and motivated that it was almost it was almost shocking and unbelievable. In fact, if you could read Akkadian, Sumerian, and Hittite, if you could read those ancient languages as Dr. Walke and Richard Pratt and some of the, the professors I had can do, they would read them and they were shocked at what they read. Even coming from the 20th and 21st century. So don't think that the Bible is prudish. The Bible understands what sexuality is. And Paul calls it porneia. And he uses a word along with another word, the word impurity, which is akatharsia. And when you couple these words together, he's saying it's anything and all things that have to do with sex that are illicit. Illicit sexuality. Now this will include premarital extramarital, and homosexual sex. It includes some other things I'm not going to talk about right now uh, f for obvious reasons. But clearly, 
having sex before marriage, having sex during marriage with somebody that's not your spouse, and homosexuality uh, were included in in this word no matter what theologians, Oprah Winfrey rolls out onto her stage and tells you otherwise. Are you listening? No matter who Oprah Winfrey runs out onto her stage and has and says this is so and so and he knows everything and that person says whatever he says, you be Bereans and you get your Bible and you open them up to Romans chapter 1 and start reading around verse 18 and, and then go in the little column in your Bible and check all the Croft references and that'll be your good answer. Yes? Amen? Okay. Don't listen to Oprah Winfrey. She's not a theologian. At least not last time I checked. I don't know. Maybe she will crown herself theologian of the world. Who knows? Okay. Porneia, akatharsia illicit sex. He's just coming right out. He's saying, look, you know the sexual ethic of the Roman Greco, Greco-Warman world? No good. This is not where I want you to go. This is not what your Bible teaches. You're not like that. I want you to do something different. And he links it, interestingly, look look at this verse 3. It's amazing. He links it to covetousness. And he uses another. I don't mean to throw a lot of Greek at you, but these are important. He uses a word pleonexia. It's an insatiable covenant. Covetousness is an insatiable desire irrespective of need. Now, look, let's be honest. Uh, I, I, went, I spent, in fact, I'm a little jittery because I spent so much time looking, not looking at pornography, thank God, <laughs> but reading about it and reading about the statistics. And I'm not going to bore you with all the statistics, but if they're true, then lots of people in this room either have or are using pornography. And so... If you have, or if you are, if you know someone who does, what you will find is it's insatiable. In other words, it's like a drug. It takes you to places you don't believe you would go. And when you've had your fix, you're guilty and condemned and guilt-ridden and you turn the computer off and you're finished with it and you say, I'm not going to ever do it again and you feel good for a few days and then the thing starts to creep back and the next time it takes a little bit more. It's like a drug. It's like alcohol. It's like other things that are addictive. And that's what he's talking about. This sexuality, listen folks, sexuality gone awry will take you into slavery and bondage that you cannot believe. And um, it's very difficult to break. It's like a thirst that cannot be slacked. It's like a tapeworm in your soul. And you eat, and you eat, and you eat. And you grow thinner and more wasted and more weak and more eaten alive. It's horrific. And this is why Paul is addressing it. And 
Listen carefully. This is why he doesn't scold. He doesn't scold. And in fact, there's not one single case of Jesus, man, he met some immoral people. I mean, straight up in your face, immoral people. And not once did our Savior ever scold them. But with almost scandalous love and grace, he reached out to them and he forgave them. And then he told them, Leave your life of sin. He didn't tell them, Oh, I forgive you. It's okay. No, leave it. It's enslaving you. And I have freed you. I do not condemn you. He told the woman caught in adultery, Where are your condemners, woman? Is there no one left? No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. Now go and leave your life of sin. But if you reverse those, if Jesus had said, where are your accusers? No one Has no one accused you? And the woman says, no one, Lord. And Jesus had said, well now leave your life of sin and I won't condemn you. You wouldn't have Christianity anymore, folks. All you would have is moralistic, therapeutic deism. And moralistic, therapeutic deism won't die for you on a cross. Won't take the filth of your sin. Won't won't absorb it into His very being and put it to death. Only Jesus Christ did that. And that's why He could reach down to a prostitute washing His feet with her tears and wiping them with the hair of her head, a highly charged sexual act. He was, she was wiping them with his feet and everybody was scorning and making faces. And he looked around. Now he scolds. Now he gets angry. That's our Savior. That's our God. That's the one that we proclaim. Paul does not scold He simply says, he appeals to them in the most gentle and pastoral way. You know, people say, think Paul was harsh, Paul was... No, he wasn't. This man was as tender-hearted as you can come, but he doesn't scold them. What he says is, look, that's out of character. That's not who you are. He goes back to his indicative that we've been talking about for months. He goes back and says, that's not you. Don't do that. It's out of character for you. It mustn't be named. Look what he says. It mustn't even be named among you. Let me say a few things quickly and then we'll move on. Sex is exquisitely beautiful and intimate. It's being naked and unashamed with another human being that you can't be naked and unashamed with in any other way. It is utterly and completely unique. Now, I know that some people have messed up relationships and I'm not addressing it. I'm saying in its, in its created nature, it is meant for you to be able to be completely open, completely vulnerable, that that person, that one human being on all God's earth knows you in a complete way that no one else can and should know you. Are you with me? It is exquisitely beautiful. It's not sin Sex as sin, and it's not sacred to the point where it's elevated uh, beyond earthiness and realness, so that you can you can take your 
your spouse and you can frolic with them in wonderful ways and enjoy one another in unique ways. The counterfeit, and everyone in this room that's an adult, every one of you understand this, the counterfeit to that kind of love and sexuality is self-indulgent, exploitative. It is using and abusing. Not serving. Not sacrificing. Sex is, ins- is inseparable. Listen, folks. It's inseparable to your essential self. Love and intimacy and relationship. And that's why when it is abused, it causes such great damage. That's why uh, people, women in particular, who have been raped or molested, uh, if you have been in a marriage where there has been a betrayal and adultery committed in a marriage, uh, if, if, if you have uh, gotten involved in pornography, it does violence to your heart, your mind, and your soul. In fact, I read, I tried my best in researching for this to read non-Christians. And even non-Christians, even liberal uh, newspapers, magazines, and blogs, the Huffington Post, I love the Huffington Post, please don't judge me. Uh, I love the Huffington Post and I read some amazing things where even secular Psychologists and doctors are saying pornography and adultery and sexual craziness is causing people's minds to get rewired. You know, your mind, there's neural pathways in your mind. So when you take a drug or you take alcohol, you use alcohol to excess. Now, we're Presbyterians. We want to be very careful here about how we define that. When you use alcohol to excess or you use drugs to excess or you use some of these other things like pornography or even illicit sex, it rewires the pathways in your brains. And they're finding this out that it is very difficult. Those things get ingrained and they're hard to break. And this is why I'm not, I'm not going to push the... the, the I, I don't want to go to the do's and don'ts and and how to guard your internet and all that. You know what? If you need help on the internet, come see somebody and get some help. But one thing we're not going to do is we're not going to redefine our sexuality like, unfortunately, other churches and denominations are doing and saying, okay, we're going to take this whole category of stuff and we're going to move it over here. It's not sin anymore. Well, hey, I didn't see you up on Mount Sinai. What's up with that? It's amazing. Human beings, frail human beings, our lives, if at best, maybe 80 rotations around uh, the sun. If you're doing good, 80. And the last half of those aren't that great. And we have the arrogance to look up to heaven and say, eh, I decide for myself what's right and wrong. The Apostle Paul said judgment comes on that. The individual sins we can deal with. You deal with them at the cross. You take your mess and your junk and Jesus welcomes you. In fact, what does He look like on the cross, folks? What do you see when you look at a cross? Do you see this? Well, He wants you. 
And He wants you with all your junk. And He doesn't want you to leave any of it behind. He wants you to bring it with Him. Because if you don't, it will not get fixed. Yes? Bring it with you. Alright. So He says to people, sex is beautiful. A counterfeit is not. Sex is inseparable from the essential self and why we've got, to, we've got to have tender hearts to people that have been beat up and abused. No matter what that is. What do you do? In verse 3, he says, avoid the act. In verse 4, he says, be careful how you talk about it. Now, he's not talking about, you know, jokes in good taste. He's talking about locker room talk. All you guys know what that is and some of you ladies know what your locker room talk is. In fact, we would like to hear some of that. Because we have been curious about it forever. <laughs> Everybody does it. There's crude joking and don't say, well, where's the line? I don't know where the line is. You figure it out. And I think we know what it is. But there are lines we cross when we talk about it. There are lines we cross when we think about it. And so we've got to be careful. Why? Look at verse 5 and 6. He warns. He says, make sure everyone that is doing these things uh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He issues one of his strongest warnings. He said, the people that do this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, just are you feeling a little uncomfortable at this point? Say yes. Okay. Well, let me read you a quote from Dr. John Stott because he puts, he puts everything in perspective better than I can. So here we go. Listen carefully and then you can be at rest for the rest of the day. Here we go. We must be cautious in our application of this severe statement. Boy, never has an understatement been made. But he's British. See, he can do the understatement thing. We must be cautious in our application of this severe statement. Yes, we've got to be cautious. Why? It should not, it should not, not be understood as teaching that even a single immoral thought, word, or deed is enough to disqualify us from heaven. Thanks be to God. Otherwise, which of us would ever qualify? The answer is none. No, Stott says. For those who fall, listen carefully folks, for those who fall into such sins through weakness, but afterwards repent in shame and humility, there is forgiveness. The immoral or impure person envisaged here is one who has given himself up without shame or penitence to this way of life. He is covetous and has an idolatrous obsession. This is not those of you who are struggling with your sin and you feel bad about it and you want help. It is people outside who are saying, no, I'm going to do it. This is how I am. And that's just the way it is. And I'm not going to change. And so they go to Oprah and get Oprah to give them her blessing and redefine it. And then because Oprah said it, or whoever, I'm picking on Oprah, but I mean, you can get anybody you want. And it's okay, it's okay. I guess it's okay. Because this denomination says it's okay. Do you see what I'm saying? In no way. So let's look at the second one. Let's look at the second one. Don't get caught up. It, Paul finishes this saying, just don't get caught up in it. Don't listen to these liars. This is what he means by let no one deceive you. 
He's saying, don't be deceived. Open your eyes. There's a smart group of people here. Come on, open your eyes. The culture lies. The Bible does what? Tells you the truth. The hard truth. Nothing but the truth. So let no one deceive you with empty words. Okay, let's move quickly to light. Our sexual imperative. This is, and I'm going to repeat it again. I'm, I'm going to repeat it until, I, until you finally replace me. So if you don't want to hear this anymore, you can fire me. But here it is. The light that Paul uses, the, the, the place that he takes, he says, here's your sexual imperative. He's told you don't do it. He's saying stop it. It's not you. He's given us all those imperatives. But look at what he does. This is the man I love, the Apostle Paul. This is the man you love, folks. Those of you that love Paul. The man that gave guts to the Christian religion who understood and who Jesus Himself commissioned. Here's what He says. Look at it. Verse 7, repent. Verse 8, believe. Verse 10, new obedience. What is that, class? What's it called? The Gospel Renewal Cycle. Repent. Look at verse 7. Don't be partners with them. Don't excuse it. Don't redefine your sin. If you've got a problem, admit it. Look, don't admit it to everybody in the room because they will not understand nor will they accept you again. But there's somebody out there that will accept you. And he does understand. And him you can go to with your deepest and heart brokenness and you can tell him And He will tell you, come to Me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And if you're one of those people patting your back and saying, oh, I stayed a virgin until I was married. Well, whoop-de-doo for you. Do you know what Jesus said about that? Not that that's a bad thing, but listen and don't get angry at Me. Here's what Jesus said about that. You've obeyed the law perfectly. Good for you. You stayed a virgin? Good. You've only done what's required. A couple verses later, a sinner comes to repentance. They throw a party in heaven. They're throwing confetti and letting balloons go. So don't pat yourself on the back. And for goodness sakes, folks, don't condemn yourself either. You have a Savior that stands and can hold both of those things on His shoulders like nobody else. Repent, don't be part of Believe. Look what he says in verse 8. You were darkness, you were blind, but now you are light, you are children of light. He goes back to the very beginning of Ephesians and he starts all over again. He wants you to remember who you are. Believe the Gospel. Return. Repent. Believe the Gospel. Return to Jesus Christ. And then set off on new obedience. Look what he says in verse 10. Discern the will of the Lord. Think biblically. Take your pain and your failure and your mess and go back to the Bible. Don't try to fix it on your own because i got news for you. You're not going to fix it. Take it and go to the One who can fix you and heal you and help you. So he's saying, repent, believe the gospel, move to no obedience, act, take no part. 
says, take no part. So you're going to be fighting it. You're going to be putting out effort. You can't just be standing back and going, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. No, you're actually going to have to do something. Effort is not a bad word. Yes? Amen? You're going to have to exert some effort. That's what being a disciple is, is discipline. And so there's going to be some effort. And part of that effort is repentance. Part of that effort is faith. Part of that effort is discerning God's will. Take no part, but instead expose, get perspective, get help. It's not just try harder, love Jesus more, pray more, do this and that. No, no. He's telling you, go back to who you are. Go back to what Jesus did in you. You were darkness, but not anymore. You're light. How many of you have a sinful, wicked, and deceitful heart? Let me see your hands. And put them up high because I'm coming right to you and I'm going to slap you. (laughs) Put them up high. I want to see those hands. Slap, 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 slap. You are not a sinner and you do not, you do not have a wicked, evil heart. If you do, I want you to get saved right now. Can I have an amen? Will somebody raise their hand? I'm going to get Pentecostal on you real quick. What happens when you're born again, folks? Please tell me. Somebody, I don't want to keep doing this. I'm getting old. You're, you die. If the Gospel means anything, folks, you die. You are crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not me, but Christ lives in me. He takes the heart of stone. What does He give you? A heart of flesh. You must be... What? Born again. Born from above. What does that mean? What is new birth? New heart? I am a new creature in Christ. Yes, you are a sinner. Saved by grace. Martin Luther said, simul justus et peccator. Yes. Yes, theologians. You're a sinner saved by grace. So you're a sinner, but yet righteous. You do not have an evil, wicked heart. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Yes? Who was Jeremiah talking to? He was talking to a whole nation that had absolutely, utterly, and completely rejected God. Is that you? How many of you want to lift your hands now? So you are a sinner by virtue of committing sin. Yes, indeed. But if you're a Christian, your essential nature has changed. Otherwise, explain for me this. Why do you feel bad about your sin? If you had an evil, wicked heart, how come you don't like it? What is that in us that says no? Are you going to credit yourself? I certainly hope not. It's not just try harder, love Jesus more, pray harder. No, it's move to the light. Expose yourself to Jesus Christ. Move to Him. It may take a lifetime. In fact, I'm just going to say it, folks. I don't want to discourage you. It's going to take your lifetime. The rest of your life you're going to be doing this. And thank God you will. Christianity is not about... Listen, write this down for goodness sakes. Christianity is not getting better. It's getting closer. Do you get that? It's not about you getting better. It's about you getting closer. Closer to Him. The closer you get, the better you'll be. And the worse you'll be. 
Because the closer you get to the light, more gets exposed. And all of a sudden, it's not the internet anymore. Now it's pride. Now it's gossip. Now it's arrogance. Now it's self-serving. He can get down into the very center of your heart, folks. He has. You know that. If anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. Anything that's visible is light. He's saying, bring that dark to me. I will turn it. I will change it to light. How do you do it? Let's look at the final one quickly. I'm sorry I'm taking so much time. Wisdom. Our sexual redemption. Look at these last few verses. 14, the end of 14b to 16. Therefore, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Look carefully how you walk, not as wise, not as unwise, excuse me, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. What Paul does is he reaches back into the Old Testament and he, he quotes uh, uh, the prophet Isaiah and a couple other prophets. He, he kind of pulls together what scholars think may have been an early Christian hymn. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Maybe we can put that to uh, music. Uh, Paulette and Sarah can pull that on. Uh, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. Christ will... Maybe that was something they sang in their churches back in that day. And he's saying, don't walk like unwise. Walk like wise. He's quoting the prophet. And the prophet was telling the people in that day. Remember the original audience and all that stuff? He was telling the people in that day... Leave your life of idolatry. Leave your slavery behind and come out to Me. Come out to Me. Light was an ancient symbol of healing, health, truth, knowledge, goodness, and redemption. He's saying to the the people, the church people who are caught up in sin, listening to their culture, following all kinds of weird stuff about sexuality, and there was all kinds of stuff. We can't talk about it right now, but it was in the church. And Paul's saying, wake up. And then he says this, and I'll put it in my words, but he's saying this, run, run, run to where? Run to Jesus. Run to Him. Don't walk. Run. Some years ago, I had a man come to me in our church. He was so angry, his face was red. He was so mad, he said, I hate it when you say run to Jesus. I hate it. Because you're telling the children and you're telling everybody, it's so easy. You just run to Jesus. You don't have to do anything. And I had a hard time getting these words out, but I'm going to do it now for your sake. I told this person, the hardest thing in my life every day is running to Jesus. Yes, there is nothing easy about that. And if you think it's easy, you're lying. The hardest thing in your life is going to be run. I told him, I said, the hardest thing in my life is running to Jesus. I don't want to. I'm filthy. I'm covered with sin. I have no hope in me. And I want to fix it first. I don't want to go to Him. I actually love Him. And I don't want to show up with all of this. It's hard to run to Jesus. I don't tell the children when I serve them First Communion, run to Jesus to make it easy for them. It is not easy. And you, none of you, if you're honest, have ever found it easy to run to Him. 
That's why I say it over and over again. You run to Him. You fall into these things, these sexual sins, you run to Him. Why? Here it is. God chose what is low and despised in this world. He's talking about His Son on a cross. God chose what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became, listen, here it is, became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption so that it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our sexuality is broken, folks, and a lot of us have really been hurt by it. Run to Jesus. Don't let anything stop you. That man died on a cross, naked, exposed to the world in every horrific way to pay for that sin, to nail it to His cross, and God has put it in the sea of His forgetfulness and has said, that debt is paid, it is finished, and I want you to come to Me. Will you do it? I'm begging you. Come to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Father, help us with this most... um, difficult part of our lives, our sexuality and and love and relationships and how we sometimes get so crossways and it looks so hopeless. I don't know what it must have been like to be that woman kneeling at Jesus' feet, weeping so profusely that there was enough tears to cleanse His feet with her hair. I don't know. But I know that you accepted her and that you'll accept us in our brokenness. And I pray that you'll do that. And and that in this moment as we uh, take time to come to the table, that you will heal the hearts of many. That you'll issue stern warnings to those that need to be warned. And redeem us, Father, I pray, by the strength of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Holy Spirit. And although we may struggle all our days, We know we're not alone, that you will not turn aside nor hold your nose because you've already been to the bottom. Help us, please, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.